Hello, I'm Christian, and you're listening to Inside the Cambodia Project, an educational podcast where we discuss cutting-edge research on sustainable business in an emerging market. Last episode, I talked with Shane Harrison, an adjunct professor here at Brigham Young University and former executive director of the Cambodian Job Foundation. Shane shared some wildly unique experiences from his time living in Cambodia, and he gave some great advice on how best to implement our research project there. We also had an interesting discussion about some of Cambodia's tragic history, and more importantly, its hopeful future. In this episode, our guest is calling in all the way from Hawaii, although in truth, he's not normally so far away. Dr. Bruce Money is the Fred Meyer Professor of Marketing and serves as Executive Director of BYU's Global Business Center. His research areas include international business-to-business marketing, services, and negotiation. He has published over 50 articles and refereed proceedings, and is co-author on International Marketing, the McGraw-Hill textbook. Bruce lived in Japan for two years as a young man and has led 17 student groups on study abroad programs all over the globe half of those in Southeast Asia, in part because of his experience in Southeast Asia and because of what he's learned about marketing and culture in international markets. He is working as a collaborator on our Cambodia project. Before his academic career, he gained eight years of industry experience serving as vice president of what is now Sumitomo Mitsui Banking Corp and directing Japanese debt and equity relationships for a major real estate developer. He has taught in more than 75 executive education programs for clients such as Adobe, Bayer, Bosch, and Nissan. In his spare time, Bruce and his wife enjoy cycling, skiing, and playing with grandchildren. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bruce. It's so great to have you on the podcast, even if it's not necessarily in person. (laughs) My my pleasure, uh, Christian. Uh, Tough duty out here in Hawaii, but someone's got to do it. (laughs) Seriously, I'm grateful and and uh, uh, excited for this opportunity to talk. Me too. Um, I always like to start the podcast with a quote, just because I think it it's a little brain food for us. It helps get our, our wheels spinning. So I've got a quote for you from Paolo Coelho, who is the best-selling author of the, the book, The Alchemist. I don't know if you've read it, um, but here's the quote. It says, culture makes people understand each other better. And if they understand each other better in their soul, it is easier to overcome the economic and political barriers. But first, they have to understand that their neighbors are, in the end, just like them, with the same problems and the same questions. So what do you think about this quote? When you, when you hear this quote, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, it, it is great uh, food for thought, as you say. Um, and, and some of it I would I would agree with some uh, I would disagree with. That's uh, what makes it a great quote, right? There's a lot of layers of meaning in it. Uh, the 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 uh, the first part, the culture, uh, helping us understand each other, overcoming barriers. Um, absolutely true. Uh, if if culture um, is 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 shared understanding amongst a group and between groups. Uh, and, and the better we understand uh, another culture, uh, it, the, the more barriers we can overcome. It's, it's, a, it's a well-known 
uh, fact in political science and and uh, economics that uh, countries that trade um, are are less likely to go to war. Hmm. Um, the the uh, the last the last uh, couple of lines um, just on its surface, although there's deeper meanings of it that that would that would uh, resonate uh, with folks. Um, but the same same problem, same questions. Um, you know, in the United States, um, our problems are different than the problems uh, in many much of the developing world. Clean clean water and enough food to eat. Uh, those aren't really our problems. And, um, so the, 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 now the, the, uh, problems of self-actualization and, uh, meaning in life, those are, those are the same problems and the same questions. Uh, those are shared by humanity. Uh, so some, some, uh, different facets of that quote that, uh, are very interesting and, and a great, a great way to kick off this discussion on culture. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Maybe on a surface level, we don't really have the same problems or the same questions as people across the globe. But but maybe there are a few intrinsic human problems, human questions of the soul that we share with people. And and I think maybe that's the point he was trying to make. But I appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing your thoughts on that. Um, sure. I, Bruce. I know you've had so many experiences abroad. Before we dive too deep into questions about your research, I want to hear some of the things you've learned as director of Brigham Young University's Global Business Center. Can you share maybe just a few things you learned about doing business or maybe research overseas? Well, um, things I've learned, I've learned um, how much fun it is. For one, I just love getting out there. And and uh, learning about new cultures, uh, taking the academic inquiry abroad, if you will. Um, uh, my role as the uh, the the global business center director is to internationalize uh, the business school at BYU. Um, if uh, any of our listeners are familiar with the Kennedy Center at BYU, it's in charge of all the international activities for the university. Uh, the Global Business Center is is kind of a mini Kennedy Center that's responsible for getting students out on study abroad programs, faculty out on research, sponsoring case competitions in foreign languages. Um, uh, I've learned that the cat's out of the bag on this uh, global stuff. It's it's uh, no longer just a, a subtopic of a subtopic, oh, well, international, that's out there somewhere. Now, it is core to what we do as a business school to what uh, our economy uh, must do to to grow and to thrive, um, and uh, students have figured that out too. We've had a we've had a uh, exponential increase in number of students seeking study abroad uh, opportunities, um, and we with our grant uh, graciously provided from uh, the U.S. government uh, Department of Education and our benefactor, the Whitmore family. Um, and other donors uh, were able to to defray some of those expenses, and it is it is expensive uh, to to get out and about. But um, uh, we consider it uh, money well spent, and um, it it helps uh, helps our students and our faculty uh, get out there and um, and uh, experience the world. If if BYU's motto is um, the world is our campus, 
then we've got to get out there on campus. <laughs> yeah, got to get away from home for sure. That's right. Get out of Provo. Uh, <laughs> we're doing the Global Business Center. Yeah. Hey, why are you so passionate about, uh, you know, international research and international business? Well, I th I think I've seen uh, the energy that it brings to a research agenda of, uh, as an academic. I've seen the energy it brings to an, an economy. It's no secret that, I mean, it, it don't you don't have to quote me, quote the uh, 200 years of economic theory that specialization in trade uh, makes uh, makes the world go around and um, uh, brings brings a higher standard of living to uh, people across the world. Now, it's slow in coming in some places, of course, and there are setbacks, uh, wars and, and uh, recessions and depressions economically. But um, it's it, it's it's uh, it's easy to get passionate about for me because I've seen the good in in the world that it does uh, academically. In business uh, in in the humanities and humanitarian efforts like the one we're uh, engaged researching about um and it's just it's just uh, a lot of fun uh it's not just the tourism part of it but the 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 meeting new people and seeing uh, new places and and especially as i see students discover themselves uh out there in uh uh what to be what you we would call the lord's country and kingdom uh, taken right out of uh, our scripture the, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88. Uh, I never get tired of that. And um, seeing them expand their world, uh, the Kennedy Center's mantra. So that's, uh, I, I could go on about that, but uh, I, I, am, I, am, I am passionate. And, and it's been, been, that, uh, been that way for my 30-year uh, career. I can, tell, I can tell you're passionate, Bruce. You, uh, I think they got the right guy for the job as far as the you know, executive director of, of the Whitmore Center goes, I'm, I'm feeling a little, little uh, motivated to go traveling now, just just after listening to you. I mean, that, uh, that's awesome. You have that fire, and that drive behind the international research and international business. Um, I want to ask you, a, I guess, a follow up question about just some of your experience abroad, as we're considering, in our research interventions in Cambodia, we're trying to help reshape domestic abuse norms, and we've considered finding celebrity or social media influencers out there to help promote our message. And from looking at your credentials, it looks like you've done some research on celebrity endorsements in Japan. So maybe could you share some of your findings uh, just as far as that goes? Sure. Sure. It was um a really, a really interesting, a fun project to work on because uh, celebrity endorsers show up in in advertising to different degrees in different cultures. Uh, very, very uh, uh, little uh, in the U.S. compared to Japan. Uh, really? And, 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 in, and in Japan, well, it's start with the U.S., particularly for some celebrities uh, who wouldn't be caught dead endorsing the product in an advertisement because it's a sign in U.S. Um, uh, celebrity culture particularly movie stars and recording stars, folks like that, that uh, you need the money. Uh, your career is kind of washing up. And uh, therefore, uh, okay, I'll do this endorsement. I don't really believe the product or know the product or care about the product. But I'll, yeah, I'll plug it and uh, collect a nice little paycheck uh, for that. Uh, in Japan, the use of celebrity endorsers is everywhere. 
and those same people who wouldn't be caught dead uh, endorsing a product in the U.S. are all over uh, Japanese uh, mass media advertising. Um, folks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, folks like Meryl Streep, folks like George Clooney. Uh, you know, uh, Schwarzenegger is, is endorsing ham. Uh, uh, Meryl Streep beauty products. The, these these are celebrities who who don't do endorsements uh, in 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 the U.S. or other places, but the Japanese love it. And I I'm <laughs> we try to get at that phenomenon in our research. Um, and what what we and, and particularly uh, what happens when a celebrity endorser gets in trouble? That was that was uh, pathbreaking because no one's ever looked at that cross culturally. That is, huh. oh, the news the news reports of uh, uh, the late Michael Jackson um, being accused of, uh, of of child molestation. Uh, Charlie Sheen, uh, pretty pretty much a bad boy out there uh, in the world of celebrity endorsers getting in, getting in trouble. Um, others, uh, you know, Madonna, folks who have had some negative. Uh, publicity. We've had some recent examples of that in the sports world as well. Um, you know, doping and so forth. What happens? Well, they get dropped pretty quickly uh, in in the U.S. Um, what happens in Japan? And how do how do the Japanese consumers uh, versus American consumers uh, view a, an endorser that gets in trouble? And and um, the findings were a bit surprising um, in in that. Uh, uh, the the sample in the U.S. Uh, it it seemed like the the more trouble the celebrity got into the 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 more uh, customers liked their product that they were endorsing. Really? Uh, yeah, we called it a bad boy effect, and uh, uh, huh. it's like, well, we can we you know we've we've uh, you know maybe not get to trouble to that extent, but we've all made mistakes and. Uh, we all have character flaws, and and so if you if you uh, developed a drug problem, uh, that's kind of your own your own business or your own problem, unless you do something uh, untoward while you're on drugs. But that's different than uh, scamming uh, a group of people out of their money, you know, in an investment scheme. And so, uh, in our in our research, we found that uh, a highly collectivist society uh, sees uh, the damage done uh, to the brand. Uh, much more severely if it harms the group rather than if it just harms the individual, uh, which we which we kind of expected but confirmed in our in our research. So um, that, those are, those are the findings in a nutshell, and it, it made it made the the news, so to speak, in, in research terms, got published in a in a in a pretty good marketing journal. That's super interesting, Bruce. Thanks thanks for uh, sharing just that that two minute recap. I wonder how do you think you know, some of those findings, will they, if we were to run something similar in Cambodia, do you think we might see something similar? Do you think they're a, a largely collectivist society there as well? And, and uh, if we were trying to promote, you know, social change through celebrities or social media influencers, what might that look like in Cambodia? Well, I think um, you, you do see similarities in the Asian cultures when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, but things like endorsers, although although we we tend to look at Asia as a monolith of culture, and it's 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 not it's not um, not exactly that 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 way. Uh, J- 
Japan uh, being a more highly industrialized society than Southeast Asia is going to be um, more individualistic and, and the, 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 the data, the cultural data bear this out than a place like uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, which are highly collectivist. I, 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 it'd be a fascinating study around just on the celebrity endorser piece. My, my guess is that you probably find even more of an effect uh, of the collectivist uh, versus the individualist um, in, in that uh, the, the, the societies in Southeast Asia are so, I, I think they're more tightly knit than Northern Asia. And um, I'm guessing that uh, endorsers and I, I don't have I don't have data on Cambodian advertising in specific and how they use celebrity endorsers. But I I my my theory my hypothesis would be that you'd see a similar effect that that if um, uh, some some bad behavior is is harming the uh, the collectivist and and society is the collectivist if doing doing harm to people out there not just yourself through a through a um, you know, a, a personal indiscretion, uh, then, uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that could be, uh, more, more research and, and experience would, would bear that out or not could be highly effective. Huh. That's super interesting. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I feel like those insights might be really useful as we try to work potentially through those, uh, influencers abroad, you know, it's kind of, we're kind of just going into the deep, deep end and we don't really know exactly what we're going to see but let's talk more about what you've seen in asia first from our all hands on research meeting about a month ago i realized that you are an expert at hofstede's cultural dimensions um and i'd love to ask you some questions related to that but first could you explain just to me and also to our listeners in layman's terms what are hofstede's dimensions and also why are they important to understanding cultural differences around the world. Sure, uh, just just a brief uh, recap of who Hofstede is and what is what is the research <clears throat> entails and how these dimensions have uh, come about. Uh, Hofstede is a, a Dutch researcher in organizational behavior, Geert Hofstede, um, and uh, he did a study. Uh, back in the um, early 80s, when his uh, research was published, a book called Culture's Consequences, uh, about uh, dimensions of national culture. And um, he surveyed uh, IBM employees all over the world, uh, 117,000 of them, actually, wow. and um, which is, yeah, an impressive data set. And, and from that, distilled five dimensions of, of national culture. And um, those uh, five dimensions are power distance, which is basically a measure of rank. In high power distance societies, uh, it's okay uh, to have people of, of higher uh, status and people of lower status. In low power distance society, uh, we're, we're, it's more egalitarian. It's, it's better if people are more on an equal footing when it comes to power. Second would be uh, individualism versus collectivism, which is pretty much what it sounds like. I, I can I can get into more specifics of uh, and these were out of uh, sixty countries, by the way. The IBM data were collected around the world. But uh, moving on to the the other um, the other dimensions, uh, the next uh, one is 
distinct role separations between the genders. Men do one thing in our society, women do another. Uh, the most highly masculine society uh, with role separation, uh, without the, the, the aggression part, uh, is, is uh, Japan. Uh, now, World War II historians would say, well, they were highly aggressive. Well, that was the warlords versus the, the, uh, the uh, emperor and, and, and the, the general Japanese populace are, by and large, not a highly aggressive people. Um, war does strange things to culture. But um, uh, men, men pretty much do one thing in that society. Women do another. Men go off and toil away for the good of Japan, Inc. Uh, women by and large, uh, stay home and, and tend the home front. Um, uh, but that, that's, that's just an example. The fourth dimension is uh, what is known as uncertain avoidance, which is a measure of risk. Uh, highly uncertainty avoidant cultures um, avoid uncertainty. They avoid risk. They don't like risk. Uh, whereas um, uh, low uncertain avoidance cultures don't mind it. The stock market uh, might be a, a measure of uncertainty avoidance. Cultures that are highly uncertainty avoidant uh, don't like uh, the stock market as well as uh, cultures that that uh, do that are that are low on uncertainty avoidance. Bring it on! Yeah. Do you know a what's like a good example, just off the top of your head, of a of a low uncertainty avoidance country or society? Well. Um, the uh, the 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 cultures of Northern Europe, for example, pretty stayed in their behavior. They've had uh, a lot of uh, economic history and um, political history. Uh, they don't they don't like war. They've had to on their own soil, so they're going to avoid things that that, that bring on uh, risky things politically or economically. War brings depression. Uh, so the, that's an example of a few, a collection of cultures that don't, don't really, really like risk and, and have become more, uh, uncertainty avoidant over the centuries. Interesting. And then there's one more, right? What's the fifth? Uh, the fifth would be long-term, uh, orientation, um, that, uh, at first wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, highly emergent in the the data, but uh, Hofstede found this fifth dimension that uh, had to do with planning, tradition, uh, you know, a long-term view of life in the world versus a short-term view. And um, as you might imagine, uh, Asian cultures uh, are are more long-term oriented than Western cultures. I mean, in the U.S., the, speaking of the stock market, the analysts you know, it's all about quarterly earnings, right? 90 days. Uh, that's kind of kind of their horizon in a lot of cases. Uh, Mitsubishi has a 300-year uh, budget. Uh, wow. A what? <laughs> it's going to be around in 300 years. What? Nobody. But uh, that's the way they, they look at uh, their civilization in the world. And Japan's been extant as a culture for several thousand years. So what's 300? Haven't even been around as a civilization in the United States for that long. Um, so that's uh, long-term versus short-term orientation. And then I should add that, uh, and, and uh, uh, students of culture will know this, that a sixth dimension has been added in the last uh, couple of decades called indulgence. Uh, 
indulgence versus restraint. Uh, cultures that have an eat, drink, and be merry uh, uh, culture uh, or attitude and are, are indulgent in their ways, whereas uh, those that uh, are are less so. Oh, they're not. They're they're the antithesis of party animals, uh, so to speak. Uh-huh. Are exercise restraint, and um, again, you can imagine that uh, the long orientation dimension uh, in the Asian cultures is highly correlated with the indulgence uh, versus restraint cultures. Asian cultures, particularly Northern Asia, are more restrained uh, because they've been around for so long. They see what indulgence. Uh, uh, can do uh, to a country and a culture. Uh, the the U.S. Uh, is is higher on indulgence, um, maybe because we haven't been around so long as a culture, and uh, we we tend tend to look at things now, you know, more more in the moment, and we're shorter on, on our orientation. So there's a couple of examples of how those two dimensions work together. Uh, but that's kind of a summation of uh, Hofstede's dimensions, um, why they're important. Uh, the, the, first of all, the naysayers would say IBM culture, uh, is not national culture and you measure corporate culture, not the uh, culture of the, the person on the street, uh, in these countries. Um, uh, and then that's a valid, that's a valid criticism. Uh, it's been fairly difficult to replicate these dimensions in, uh, in cross-cultural research. Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, tried it and, uh, failed on all but the one uh, dimension of long-term orientation. We measured uh, that dimension better than Hofstede's items, which was news and got published in a pretty good journal. Um, but that being said, uh, the strengths of his research and the importance of his research cannot be overlooked because of the, the massive database. Uh, mm-hmm. How many of us have a... size of 117,000. That's yeah. hard who's, to argue. Who's, right? who's got that? Nobody. And, and so we call that face validity. <laughs> There's just so much, uh, uh, what, um, uh, emphasis and, and, and uh, impetus and momentum and uh, just, just the sheer force of data in his work that it's hard to argue with. Um, his, his book that I mentioned, Culture's Consequences, uh, in 1980s, uh, been cited more uh, he's, he's cited more as an author than uh, Karl Marx in the Social Science Citation Index. As we're speaking, another 17 doctoral students are citing culture's consequences when it comes to cross-cultural research. And there's been other, maybe better uh, dimensions, or measures. It's all about measurement, right, of uh, culture out there. Wow. Uh, by Schwartz and others, uh, Triandis and Gelfand, uh, to throw out a few names. Um but uh, Hofst- Hofstede's uh, place in the cultural universe uh, measurement and dimensions uh, pretty pretty well stands, um, and so we continue to uh, to cite him as kind of the nidus of uh, measurement of national culture, uh, even though the 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 research is uh, what uh, coming up on forty five years old. Um, does culture change? Yeah, a little. Um, anthropologists would say it, it uh, but not a lot. That is the underlying faith uh, or belief uh, in, in uh, your own culture and faith in your own belief system. 
doesn't doesn't change a whole lot. The manifestations, the artifacts of culture do change. Uh, that is the music, the fast food, the, the clothing. For sure. Uh, those yeah, things come and go. But the and we'll talk and, and we'll talk more about the definition of culture, but um, the, the people criticize well, it was published in nineteen eighty on how old is, is the, the Chinese culture in a few millennia. Uh, we're, um, we're, as culture researchers, we're not too concerned about that. Although we're always looking for new knowledge and, and new ways to measure things. Yeah. So of those dimensions of Hofstede's dimensions, um, which ones do you think will affect research and humanitarian work in Southeast Asia? You know, as, as far as our project goes, which ones should we bear in mind? Yeah, if you look across the dimensions, uh, I think definitely individualism versus collectivism would be would be uh, a dimension to look at and, and consider in, C in Cambodia, uh, like the rest of Asia, going to be uh, more collectivist. And, and so if you're looking for social change uh, in, in a society, it's more likely to happen in a collectivist society than an individualist society, um, just incredible. by the force, force of numbers and just how, how, how it works. Um, uh, masculinity versus femininity, kind of role separation. Uh, men doing one thing, women doing uh, another. Uh, the role, the roles of men and women being different. That that might that may be leading to some of the problems uh, that uh, we're examining in this this culture. So that that could uh, be a dimension to look at. Uh, power distance, yeah, def definitely. Uh, the hierarchy, the the um, the uh, okayness of high versus low uh, status in society that again uh, could be could be leading to uh, uh, to some of the, the the problems that that we're looking at and so um, yeah there may there may be some of the others as well but I think I think those are the main the main three yeah we'll definitely have to keep those in mind as we attempt to implement this research I think I really like that you brought up how collectivism might actually, you know, work for us in our favor as we're trying to, um, you know, promote some societal change. Lucky for us, Cambodia is uh, a mostly collectivistic society. And so they're going to hopefully embrace to some degree this, um, this community social impact angle that we're, that we have with our research. I think, I think that is something that will be working for us. So that's encouraging <laughs> at the very least. Uh -huh. I think um, so last week, just to change the topic slightly, I went to lunch with several other BYU students who had lived in Cambodia and they told me about an interesting phenomenon. So I'm going to pick your business, your international business brain at the moment in open air markets, just on the side of the street, they saw regularly like three or four businesses and they're set up right next to each other in a row, all selling the exact same thing with absolutely like no differentiation at all. No marketing, no different labels. I mean, the same exact products. And I was just wondering, what do you think about that? Is that normal in Southeast Asia? I'm, I have a theory that maybe the collectivist nature in Southeast Asia might have something to do with why businesses might want to do that, you know, maybe out of respect for... <laughs> their neighbors or something, but what are your thoughts on that practice? <laughs> well, it's a lot of fun to watch and it's uh, common in, 
in uh, in Asia, <clears throat> um, I've seen the same thing. And if you're looking for a certain color or size of a product that one vendor doesn't have, they scurry off and say, oh, just a minute. They'll go to their neighboring vendor and get that product, you know, in, to fit your specifications. And uh, off you go. You the transaction complete. I imagine in, in the background after uh, money's exchanged, they go arrange some kind of a split with their neighboring vendor. That, that doesn't happen in the U.S., right? I mean, yeah, not at a, all. A stock out at Walmart, they don't go over to Target and say, hey, can I use some of your you know, jeans uh, to sell to this customer? Who doesn't. And it's, I realize the scale is different, but the, the culture, the business culture just doesn't work that way. And, and yeah, so uh, what's going on there? Yeah, highly collectivist. And, and, and uh, their, their culture... Uh, encourages cooperation encourages um well this this is uh, kind of a social bad you know piracy um if i can use that term kind of a a, a a stark way to say it but uh the whole the whole phenomenon of copying a product that's a compliment to uh a manufacturer in in uh in, in in Asia culture, and I'm I'm again treating as a monolith. There's differences. Uh, Japan has stronger intellectual property rights than than China and, and some of Southeast Asia and so forth. But it wasn't that long ago where trying to own your own product, your own IP, uh, was punishable. Uh, the Cultural Revolution in China. Um, they're going. Well, what do you mean? We, we that's how we're going to get ahead in the world economy is by cooperating, by copying. We make a good copy. And um, uh, they kind of scratch their heads at our, our uh, objection to that. Well, they, you know, they've come to the, the, the World Trade Organization party and figured out that yeah, you need some uh, IP protection. Um, but uh, the, the, the basics of uh, collectivism versus individualism, I mean, they're, they're, they've copied BMWs in Shanghai. How do you copy a car? uh the scale that's just just astounding to me um but some uh some cultural nuance there to to the aspect of cooperation and and collaboration um that's that that's what i think is going on uh you, you would say you that have, in, in southeast Asia, sorry to interrupt you would say that the uh, imitation definitely is the highest form of flattery at least in southeast asia as far as business goes well, I, I can't speak for the, the entire business community in that part of the world, but I can't see what I've what I've noticed. And yeah, uh, it, it it's kind of the collaboration. The well, let's see if we can improve on each other's work. Um, that's that's uh, that's a phenomenon, and, and it goes to this kind of sub dimensions of uh, collectivism and individualism. I mean, um, just to kind of drill down on on that a bit. Uh, some researchers took individualism and collectivism and split them into horizontal individualism and vertical individualism and collectivism. So th just an example, um, uh, the, the horizontal individualism that is going up, up and down a, a hierarchy, uh, you know, that, that uh, is, is, you know, talking about uh, individual rights uh, basically. And, um, a, a, uh, a, a country that values, uh, self-reliance, but, um, uh, individuality, uh, would be high in, in, you know, in 
in uh, horizontal individualism. Um, the the uh, Scandinavian countries, for example. Okay, leave me alone. I'm kind of like to keep to myself, but I but I really enjoy uh, the uh, the government kind of taking care of me. Uh, hmm. I don't mind paying eighty percent of my taxes uh, for free education, free healthcare, and so forth. Vertical individualism um, would would be more uh, upward mobility. Um, uh, we have, you know, power seeking, uh, status, uh, you know, the, the pre-revolution, uh, French culture, um, you know, why, why there was so much, uh, what hierarchy and wealth in the upper classes and, and very little in the lower classes, uh, led, led to, uh, you know, death to tyrants and the, the revolution against the monarchy. Um, too much, a little too much vertical individualism. Um, and, and I think, I think, uh, Southeast Asia kind of fits into a horizontal collectivism. If you move to the other side, uh, horizontal collectivism would be interdependence, helping others, uh, nurturing, um, being, being equal with more social responsibility. Uh, and, and I think, I think that, that again, works to the, uh, advantage to, uh, the phenomenon we're trying to uh, well study and and perhaps influence in our our research about uh, uh, social responsibility. Yeah, it makes me wonder if maybe there's uh you know I I'm going into this research thinking wow if we could just teach these businesses to differentiate maybe you know they they have so much they could learn from us and from our our Western ideas of of what business should look like. I'm starting to think maybe we stand to learn a lot from them and the way they do business, uh, just the way that they prioritize the the community before the individual. And I think I, I'm excited to um, to go there and and to really experience and see if I can learn something from them, maybe even more than I can I can really teach them. So well, that's so true. And, and anthropologists would say. Uh, you know, there's several levels of analysis of culture, right? What what is culture? First of all, there's there's a hundred definitions out there. Plus, and culture is 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 a a system of beliefs, values, uh, and traditions that are they have to be three things to be a culture: learned, shared, and transmitted by a group of people, not in not as individuals, but as groups. And um, uh, though those 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 things change slightly over time but we we can you know in, in the in the analysis of the levels of culture the what the first level is is data here's what's going on in that culture um the, the we have at the, end, at the end of that uh uh what continuum there's there's harsh laws against uh what uh, cultural uh norms that are broken i mean any culture murder is bad uh, the other cultural universal uh, taboo is incest. No matter what culture you're talking about, uh, sexual relations amongst family members, uh, family of origin is not acceptable. And in, and in the middle, you kind of have this area, this area of of, uh, of judgment, like oh, you should change your culture to to be more like ours. Anthropologists and I think smart business people stay away from that. Uh, our, our our task as business anthropologist is to go learn just as you were saying learn from their culture before you you can have any chance 
of uh, influencing attitudes or uh, behavior for change and, and change for the better. Yeah, that's just super interesting. I think um, even just during this podcast, I think I'm I'm learning a little bit more about how I should go about approaching our research just abroad um, and, and going about doing good abroad in general, just just being sensitive and and aware of the implicit cultural differences and learning to appreciate them uh, because they probably exist for a reason. And I, I guess we're kind of out of time, but I want to ask you one more question before we go. So I recently finished Banerjee and Duffalo's book. It's called Poor Economics. Um, and one of their most interesting takeaways based on their findings, they did a lot of international research, um, you know, mostly economic research, but they talk a lot about entrepreneurial endeavors in in developing markets, uh, not unlike Cambodia. And their one of their biggest findings was contrary to popular belief, these countries that we think of as poor or or developing are in fact not doomed to continue to be poor. They're not doomed to failure based on current poverty or a tragic history. Um, they they really think that poverty is a fixture of the 21st century, but that it doesn't have to be. And based on what you've seen just abroad and, and throughout your research, do you agree or disagree with that take and why? Well, I, um, I, I would, I would uh, have, have to agree that they're not doomed to failure. And I'll give you an example in just a second. I do want to leave our, our listeners with a, with a tool that they can use when it comes to culture. And that's, that's in the Hofstede uh, website that uh, lets you take any of those 60 countries and compare them on the six dimensions. You pop in the United States versus Japan. Now, Cambodia isn't in the data set of 60 countries because in 1980 uh, was, wasn't a, a place people were doing a lot of research. Uh, but you can look at uh, Thailand or Vietnam and see the differences. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, uh, Japan, Japan, and we found this in our research, is is climbing on individualism as as opposed to uh, Vietnam, for example, in Southeast Asia, uh, that uh, is still pretty collectivist. So you look it up on on uh, Hofstede's uh, websites, HofstedInsights.com, um, and and students have a lot of fun looking and comparing and contrasting different countries, and and part of that plays into the question, right? Are countries that um, what are seen as as culturally or actually poor uh, tragic history um i i think i think the the most uh clear example of that uh is is japan uh talk about um tragic history poverty um you know it wasn't that long ago uh, if if uh if you you take uh 40s, 50s. I mean, that's that's not ancient economic history or or cultural history or or political history uh, or or, or um, you know history as 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 a country. That's not that long ago. For sure, um, last century. Yeah, and, and uh, last uh, you know 20, 30, 50 years. Um, you know, Japan. Well, you know, 60, 70. You, you've that was that was a, in in nineteen. 45 uh 
at the end of the war, Japan was a, a, a smoking pile of rocks. Uh, there, there was no food, and I mean, we can get in, we can get into the the, the horrors of, of war, and and, and uh, you know, it's it's never it's never a, a pleasant subject. And you know, their uh, their museums of war, uh, our memorials uh, at Pearl Harbor. I mean, there's there's the Hiroshima uh, uh, horror and, and civilians. All that's all that's horrific. No question about it. What happened in Japan is the collectivists kicked in big time and they said, all right, here's where we're at. I mean, they were feeding, they were feeding their, their infants uh, milk um, based on the, the water that would drain off of rice. The milky substance, it wasn't milk, it was water uh, that, that came out, it looked a little like milk. I mean, that's how bad things were. There was no milk in Japan. There were no, there's no dairy. Uh, and and um, people were starving. And there was no, there was no industry. It was just all gone from the war machine, uh, destruction. And uh, what happened in the sixties and seventies? Well, Japan, as 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 a people, and and industrial policy um, is different than a centrally planned economy, right? Uh, the the fall of of uh, the Soviet Union uh, would show that the central planned economies don't really work. Uh, that's different than industrial policy. The Japanese economy, the Japanese government said, we're going to put this together and we're going to focus on electronics. We're going to focus on automobiles, for example. And it worked. Uh, the, Mitsito, the Mitsubishis, the Sumitomos, the Mitsuis, the, the old trading houses of ancient Japan uh, rose to the fore and, and uh, pulled Japan up by its bootstraps, the, the level of of uh, of living the standard of living rose dramatically during that time, and uh, the quality, uh, just just the sheer uh, hard work that I witnessed over there living in Japan, uh, and and uh, yes, some some of that. If, if you want to talk about sweatshops, that's to the extreme, um, but in general, those those are hardworking people, and the the economic rise of Japan, the, the Japanese miracle, as it's called. Um, was no fluke and shows that uh, poor countries uh, are not doomed <laughs> to failure. Now, where, where's the next Japan? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's Cambodia. Maybe it's uh, Philippines. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I uh, can't really uh, fortune tell here. But um, I, I think uh, uh, that, that quote is correct, that uh, these countries um, uh, like Cambodia in, in the current case are not, are not doomed to failure at all. Well, I I really hope you're right, Bruce, and I think that's a great example with with Japan and the way that they recovered from just such a an economic disaster. I guess we could call it. Um, thanks so much for for sharing your take on that, and I think we all stand to learn something from from the examples of of Japan, the example of of uh, just collectivist societies in, in general, as far as how we can all contribute something we can all work together for the greater good of, of society as a whole um, and that brings me to uh, the way we always end our podcasts which is a reminder for everyone listening that you matter and you can make a difference and most importantly remember to lift where you stand you